buddy Jonathan Doyle with you here. Welcome friends, welcome aboard to the Supply Side Podcast. Great to have the pleasure of your company. Hope we can bring you some value in this first major interview on the new show. Very shortly I'll be introducing you to our guest Nathan Lewis. What Nathan Lewis does not know about gold standards and economic history may not have been written. This is a man who has really put in a lot of what we used to call sweat equity. He has put together extraordinary research over his four really important books. Uh, We've got Gold, The Once and Future Money, Gold, The Final Standard, Gold, The Monetary Polaris, and the book that we're going to be talking about mostly today is The Magic Formula. So these books are recommended to me. I've been working my way through them. Managed to read The Magic Formula twice in anticipation of this interview. So Nathan's somebody who really understands the history behind the role of gold in global monetary systems. And I think that many of us can agree there's some kind of big change in the wind. I mean, we've been on Bretton Woods since 1944, but I think it's fair to say that many of us are noticing that the uh, economic headwinds are interesting at best, cataclysmic at worst. So what's going to happen? What's the role of gold going to be in a rebuilt global financial system? We're going to talk about some of that. But really what, uh, what Nathan doesn't know about the gold standard probably has not been written. So I'm going to put links around for uh, in the show notes here for his books. Just head across to Amazon, type in Nathan Lewis and find any of his books. And as I'll mention again at the end of the podcast, Nathan blogs regularly on his personal blog at newworldeconomics.com. So if you want to find out more about him on his thinking on macro, on his thinking on gold and other areas of finance, head across to newworldeconomics.com and make sure you're following him there. So as I said, today's sort of conversation is going to be focused primarily on his latest book, The Magic Formula. And the great thing about this book is that the research is extraordinary, the data is extraordinary, the depth and breadth of learning and understanding, you know, he just backs up so much of what he's talking about with incredible data. The great thing about this book is that the magic formula has four words. It's that simple. And those four words are low taxes and stable money. So this has been kind of integral to supply side or classical economics, I guess, for a long time. We want to talk more about what happens in an economy when it has low taxes and stable money. And uh, there's a funny moment in the interview when Nathan kind of you know, shares how it works and it ticks along and I ask the question, I say, well, what happens? And he said, well, sooner or later, some politician comes along and uh, realizes that maybe more money could be extorted, appropriated from the good citizens of any particular country. So it's a fascinating thing about human history that we have this system that works and you'll hear him talk about that in the places that it's worked around the world in, uh, in, in key moments in nation's history. So we want to hear about that and we want to see what the implications are for the road ahead. All right, look, that's it from me. We're going to jump into the interview. I'm going to introduce Nathan to you. Please do me a favor. This is a new podcast, the Supply Side Podcast. You'll find us at supplysidepartners.com. The best thing you could do to support this is simply make sure you've subscribed. And if you find any of this content interesting for people who are interested in macro finance, hard money, supply side, classical economics, please make sure you're sharing this conversation with them. 
All right, that's it from me. My name is Jonathan Doyle. I'm your host. I'm the founder of the Supply Side Podcast. I'm passionate about this topic, and I'm really excited to press on now and introduce you to our guest, the author of The Magic Formula, Mr. Nathan Lewis. Well, Nathan Lewis, welcome to the Supply Side Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take us to the central thesis in the magic formula. What what are you trying to tell people? Well, it's kind of the it's it's really refining the supply side story with, from the 1970s essentially for a new generation and adding, you know, all that we've learned in the decades since then for I, I kind of imagine a young person, 18 or 25 or something like that wasn't around for the Reagan years and all the discussions and all the white papers that went back and forth. And they needed a place where they could just pick up a book and get the story sort of packaged nicely for them. And and really, you know, the supply side era, the, the 70s and 80s, they came up with essentially what I wrote out in the magic formula that there's lots of things that are good for economies, right? innovation or good regulation or education or a hundred things you could list. But there are two things that are really important. And they're so important that if you get them right, then two things happen. It doesn't really matter if you get the other things right or wrong because it's so good, works so well. If you get those two things right, then, you know, it's not that big a deal. And the other thing that happens is, is if you get those two things right, you can also get the other stuff right. Because you're, you're in a situation that's already prosperous and successful enough that say, oh, I got that much done, right? I, I built the house. Now I can paint the walls. You know, kind of, kind of thing. And and if you get those things to do things wrong, then it doesn't matter how many other things you get right. It's all going to burn down. So um, the, the the obvious question that came through the entire book, as I read it, and I've come into this space very late in life, is your argument so compelling? How is it being missed? Like, is it just and. A core attribute of of political economy that sooner or later atrophy sets in and people just go back to whatever's expedient. How is it missed? Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I I didn't mention what it is. So yeah, the magic formula is low taxes and stable money. Yeah. And it's real simple. Um, you know, if money's unstable, it's bad for economies, right? And if taxes are high, guess what? It's also bad for economies. And if you get two wrongs, you know, two things wrong two big things wrong, then it's really bad for economies. Yeah, And that's basically what happened in the 1970s, which kind of inspired this. But then they took those principles and, and looked through all, you know, centuries of history and say, oh, you know, this is work stuff works pretty well. You know, why don't they get things right? That, that, that's, that's an interesting question because by 1990, it was clear this stuff worked, right? It was, you know, it was very clear. And then the question is, and, and then there was effort made to kind of popularize and stuff, but it just, people weren't interested. And it's like, you, what do you mean you're not interested? Like, this is the magic formula, right? This is how societies can come from nothing and become world-beating, super wealthy success stories, like Singapore, yeah. you know, like the United States. And they weren't interested. But a lot of it's politics. We have a lot invested now in economic manipulation. The reason we don't have stable money today is because people love economic manipulation so much that they don't want to give it up. And you can't have stable money unless you give it up. You have to give up economic manipulation. And the people reason people don't like low taxes, a lot of it I, I've really come to appreciate more in the last five years or so is politics. And they wrote this into the Constitution, actually, and people understood this in the 18th century. And then they kind of forgot it um, by the end of the 19th century. And it's really, uh, you know, it's like, oh, it's Benjamin Franklin, you know, you know, three wolves and a sheep decide what's for lunch. That's right. Well, if you make taxation discretionary, 
which means you can decide that guy pays taxes and that guy doesn't, then inevitably the majority wants to tax the minority. And since yeah. the wealthy have all the money and are also inevitably a minority, you know, the wealthiest 10% of the people are always only 10% of the people, the other 90% vote to take their money. So is it essentially, I mean, is it is it really in the final analysis that there are a, a cohort of people who have the levers of political economic power have, a, have arranged a system that perpetuates their own success and progression is is it that simple that you know that's that's always part of you know this is part of politics right uh, you know self self benefit in all these ways and I, I think that what we have to do is we have to what i hope or what i hope some people will do who read these books and take an interesting topics first understand I, I call it the technical aspect right does this stuff actually work does it work yeah and does it work well you know what are the results you know not just is it better but how much better and i think we've established that it is better it works the success stories, one of the things I, I wanted to make pretty clear is that it's not just like a little thing, you know, it's like, oh, it's a little better. It's gigantic differences. Just to give an example, uh, as I wrote in the book, between 1950 and 1970, basically following the magic formula, this economic strategy, the, the GDP of Japan grew by 16 times. <laughs> it's not like, oh yeah, it's 2% a year, right? No, you know, they got 16 times bigger. And between 1995 and 2005, the Chinese economy got 26 times bigger. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, that is the kind of growth outcomes that are actually possible when you get things right. So if, if politicians are constantly talking about growth and the desire for growth, and that's what works, mm -hmm. why are we taxing? I mean, here in Australia, we're paying 45%. And you make a great point in the book, you sort of a very simple point that sooner or later, once taxes reach a certain point, people begin to wake up in the morning and go, exactly why am I doing this? And yes. that was abstract for us until relatively recently. And in our businesses here, Karen almost passed out. I said, I said, darling, seriously, 45% of what we generate is, is appropriate in one form or another. Yeah. So... And, and you make another great point, too, about the moral aspect of which really early in the book, you make the point that if you get the magic formula right, you develop a certain kind of culture. And a lot of the pathologies that are around high taxation begin to disappear. Can you, can you take us into that a little bit about the kind of the moral corollaries of, of the magic formula? Well, just you know, we, we kind of know what works at this point. And what basically works is what Singapore and Hong Kong do, do basically which is they have a more or less a flat tax, right? It's not discriminatory taxation. It's not you pay this and you pay that, or you don't pay and this guy pays 45%. Uh, it's everyone pays 15%, like a sales tax, like a VAT. We have the, you know, like a payroll tax. We already have these kind of taxes. They work very well and they generate tons of, tons of revenue and they're not big economic drags. In the constitution, it was, it was actually, there's actually the uniformity clause, the US constitution that says, yeah, all taxes are supposed to be like that. It says, yeah, Everyone has to pay the same rate, basically, is what it says. And then basically with the in the United States with the 16th Amendment, they, they didn't actually cancel that, but it was effectively overruled. And you got into the situation where, like I said, it's three wolves and a, lamb and, a, and a sheep asking what's for lunch. And the first impulse went from, uh, you know, the, in the United States, the, the first income tax was 7% for the highest earners. And within 10 years, it was 77%, <laughs> yeah. right? 
And then they, we spent a century, a hundred years, figuring out like, no, that's actually bad for business. And what's bad for business is bad for the lowest 30% of society because now they have no work, <laughs> right? It took hundred, it took, you know, 80 years for us to figure that out. And now we're at a state all throughout the Western world or the developed world where there's a political equilibrium or compromise or balance that's been found where it's, and it's just about 45% everywhere, Germany, France, Britain, Australia, United States, when you add sales, state income tax, it's just about 45%. And it's clearly a level that is confiscatory on higher incomes. It's bad for the economy. It has horribly, you know, over a complicated tax. And it's obviously a bad, but for some reason, the politics keeps landing there. And the basic reason I think is it's a balance. It's, it's a balance between the majority who basically don't pay taxes at all uh, or income taxes, taking them once and say, hey, I have a great idea. I'm going to take his money. <laughs> Let's vote for it. Against the other side, which says, no, no, but if we have taxes that are too high, then the economy starts to stink, you know? And it's, it's that political balance which has, been which has been found, which is actually a bad balance. It's, you know, it's like an agreement for mediocrity. And so I think going forward, uh, and we've seen this because uh, in Eastern Europe, there was this huge flat tax boom after 2000, and they had phenomenal growth, like insane, mind-bending, super fantastic growth and economic growth in these countries. The Russian economy got eight times larger in eight years. And then they, and then they, and they stopped. They, they, you know, they started to raise taxes on upper, upper incomes again. It's like, how can you get that wrong after eight years of super success? So what is that, what is that impulse? It's, it's, it's exactly that, right? They, they have democratic systems much like ours. And, and eventually a politician comes by and says, you know, lower incomes are paying when you add payroll taxes and VATs on these, you know, in these bigger government countries, they're, they're paying 30%, basically. And the, and, and the wealthy guys are paying 13%. It's not fair. Well, you made a great point in the book. You know, obviously, the US had no income tax before 1913. Right. And when I first came across that, coming into all this very recently, I was like, "That's how did they pay for anything? But it was essentially tobacco excises, alcohol excises, that sort of stuff, right? So there's yeah. been... Sales taxes. Yeah. So there's been successful moments in history where non-existent or very low income taxes have been have still allowed a culture to function and successfully um yeah there's 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 an interesting story um behind all that which i only sort of touched on in in the, mag the book the magic formula but I, I think it's more important as, as i've thought about it since then i think it's more important there's been a lot of important developments in taxation just as there has been developments in things like electricity and airplanes and 20th century things we think, you know, death and taxes are the oldest things in, and the world's oldest profession are the oldest things in human society, right? Which is true, right? As for, as, as be, the first day you had a society, you had taxes of some sort. But there's been enormous improvements in taxation in the last 150 years, which we haven't quite got our hands around yet. And I think it's very important going forward from here. In the 19th century, we, they, they basically didn't have income taxes. Basically, nobody did. And... The reason was is because they kind of tried it in the past and it was just a horror. It was just like disasters. They tried it, you know, thousands of years. Greeks banned income taxes, direct taxation, because they thought it was just created, it was tyranny, basically. And so they say so they settled on indirect taxes, which are sales taxes. So it was excise taxes, which are taxes on individual things, you know, taxes on beer, taxes on salt, taxes on tobacco, taxes on pencils, and tariffs, which are basically excise taxes on imports you know, tariffs separated by item, right? Which soon becomes horribly complicated because you've got 10,000 taxes on 10,000 different things. And the reason they did that is so that they all, they had an early sales tax where they just said, whenever you sell something, you got to pay 10%. Pretty simple. But if you think about it, 
well, you got to what when you sell your house, you got to pay 10%. When you sell stocks, you got to pay 10%. You know, all the line, all the steps of you know, that go into the production of a product before it hits the store, you got to pay 10% on every step. Well, you know, it didn't work. And for a thousand years, societies proved that that does, that system doesn't work. So then the first breakthroughs was actually the, the, a functional income tax, which despite all the bad things about it, nevertheless was able to generate enough revenue to fight major wars like World War One. Now you have to remember that's all they had, right? They had this income tax, which we all know is a horrible, horrible mess, but it allowed them to get more than 5% of GDP of revenue or mm -hmm. 10% of GDP to fight a big war. And then in the 1920s, you had the retail sales tax where they say, oh no, we can't tax every step of production. We just tax the final retail product. And we don't have, you know, five cents on paper and three cents on salt. We just say 10% for everything at the retail level. And that was actually a giant breakthrough. Now you could have a sales tax which you didn't have this insane complexity. And every time you have a tax, there's a political battle, right? Should the beer tax be 30 cents or 20 cents, right? No, you flat tax for everything, which generated a lot of revenue. It's simple, it's low, it was a huge breakthrough. And the next breakthrough was the VAT in 1950s. Didn't even exist until 1950s. And VAT is actually kind of an interesting, subtle thing. Um, it's usually thought of as being equivalent to a sales tax, but it's really not. It's actually very similar to an income tax uh, in, in some ways. Actually, actually, there's one. there was something before that, which is the payroll tax, which is from the 1930s, which they say, well, rather than taxing when people spend money, you could just tax them when they make money. Flat rate, every dollar, you know, there's no brackets, there's no deductions, just from the first dollar to the last dollar, 10%, you know, there's usually an upper limit on income, but that's kind of how it worked, right? That was also a huge moneymaker, very simple. There's no tax return. There's no accountants. And then the VAT in the 1950s. So I think going forward, when we when we think about what works, see, in the old days, we didn't have anything besides the income tax. It was income tax or the tax on salt, <laughs> stamp tax, right? From the 1770s, if you know American, 1760s, if you know American history. But now we have these things that, which can finally replace them, which are, you know, 10%, it's a low rate, it's super simple. There's no tax returns. It's uniform. Everyone pays the same rate and we can generate huge amounts of revenue with this stuff. So I take France. France has one of the highest rates of taxation in the world. If you eliminate the income tax, France, just cross it out, including the corporate income tax, just gone. You still get tax revenue of about 35% of GDP. <laughs> so you can have, if you want to, I don't recommend it. You can have big socialist government with no income taxes. Anyone who's interested in these topics has to come to this, you know, what do we know now in 2020? So we had the development of these taxes and now we're to the 50s. Now we come to the 70s and the 80s where we say, oh, you know, income tax, income taxes, high rates are bad. And, you, and then the, you had the flat tax. And if you, know, if you follow these things in the United States, you had the flat tax proposal. We had the fair tax proposal, which is like basically a national sales tax. Because you, you made a point in the book, you're talking about Japan, and you said that Japan actually had high levels of taxation, but they had an enormous a number of deductions and other ways to bypass. So does that work? I mean, to have a high nominal interest, uh, a high nominal tax rate, but then allow large numbers of uh, deductions? It does work. Obviously, it worked well enough for Japan, but it doesn't work very well in the sense that uh, if they, they had high taxes just because it was kind of like the fashion, right? It's just yeah. what people did. And then they made, they made so many holes in it that it just became, it's like an imaginary tax system, right? <laughs> Yeah, they basically they basically develop you know they they change the definition of profits for corporations so they wouldn't have corporate profit taxes. Yeah, they 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 created so many they, so many deductions that if they had any profits they just they, if they rolled it into new capex the profits would disappear and they pay no taxes. I've been reading Ross Douthat's new book The Decadent Society and he's yeah. got a 
chapter devoted to political sclerosis and he makes mm-hmm. he's sort of making the point that the early political processes in the US were obviously dealing with a relatively simpler polis like a relatively simpler world and then he makes the point that you know part of the problem now is that there's just such enormous cultural complexity obviously there's you know a vastly larger population is some of what's happening in the taxation space to do with just the sheer growth and complexity in our economic systems like is it just that as the world has grown more complex as technologies become you know what it has has the whole question become is it more complex or is it still that the fundamentals are essentially simple because the book just makes it that clear it's like when you do these two things these are the reasonable outcomes is that impacted by sort of cultural complexity population growth technology or does it hold no i would say absolutely not for example i would recommend if if you had to have if you could just say what is the perfect tax system i i tend to have the same opinion as people who have been serious thinkers about this which is the vat VAT, VAT is an awesome tax. People hate it in the United States because they don't want European, you don't want to have a VAT plus an income tax system. I understand that. I understand yeah. that. But if you could just, you know, from a technician's point of view, what's the best system? VAT is the best system. And the VAT is real simple. People don't quite know what it is, but value added is basically defined as the revenue of the company minus the expenses, a bit minus the non-employee expenses of the company. And then you take whatever that number is, you just, you know, and you multiply it by 10% and that's your tax payment. That's the whole system. It doesn't matter how complex your economy is. That's the system. It, it, I mean, it literally is that simple. So you people say, oh, so you, these problems are so hard to solve. No, they're not. Um, it, this is just people wanting to act like they're the smartest guy in the room or, you know. So the re- a related question that I'm trying to get my head around is with the advent of MMT and, and the vast amount of currency flooding into the system, my, my understanding is basically Treasury wants X amount of dollars to do whatever here in this country. And so they, you know, they issue their T-bills and open market operations and then the Fed <laughs> unicorn magic yes. puff of smoke money currency appears. Why do we need to tax at all if we can just endlessly print money? Well, I mean, uh, I just started to wonder if we're just printing money. Uh, well, that's an interesting question. One thing about the MMT people is they're not discovering anything new. People have known this for 200 years. It's just that they're discovering it for the first time. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're catching up with people we knew 200 years ago. And in fact, being the money creation, you know, issuing the current currency is a, is a kind of business. And at times it's been a private business and at times it's been sort of, you know, cover public business, government business, but it makes money. It's called seniorage income and it's called seniorage income because the senior is the Lord. So it just tells you how old this terminology is. And there's seniorage income involved. And so that income does partially, you know, it might cover a small part of your expenses, might cover, you know, more than all of your expenses. It's pretty good. The long form of this discussion is, is gets kind of complicated, but there have been times in the past when the United States or Britain printed a gigantic amount of money and spent it, mostly during the wars. And, and the basic reason they can get away with that is because people were willing to hold larger amounts of money, which is very common in crisis situations. You know, they don't trust banks. They put it in the mattress under the bed. And if everyone has $10,000 in, in $20 bills in a coffee can, then the government is able to print $10,000 per capita for free is basically what happens. And then what also what typically happens is after the war and there's kind of like a, you know, risk aversion goes down and the economic boom happens and all the coffee can money comes out and the economy grows a lot, but the money supply doesn't grow very much. So it, you know, it, then it recovers, you could say in the, in the decade after, after the war. Mm-hmm. So we've seen this prop, this 
this process in the past. And so nothing the MMT people say today is particularly surprising. But where it's going, uh, unfortunately, politically, is where things often go, things almost always go when governments get their hands on the money creation mechanism, which is they start passing the money around. And inevitably, it seems like as part of this process, you know, they can't just say this, right? We're just going to make money and spend it. <laughs> ha ha ha, right? They go quite... They can't just do that. So they inevitably make up silly excuses. And there, there's two books that are pretty interesting. One is Fiat Money Inflation in France by Andrew Dixon White, which talks about hyperinflation in France in the 1780s. And there's uh, When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson, which talks about hyperinflation in Germany in the 1920s. And one of the surprising things in those books is that the whole time they're making excuses. There are people making excuses why they weren't really doing what they're doing. <laughs> and why, oh, it's going to be fine. There's no consequences and you could get away with this. And we invented yeah. something new and you guys are also old fashioned in funny days. So this is kind of, it's yeah. you're seeing this again, right? Well, I heard someone say during the week that if uh, if you or I were to print counterfeit money, we get arrested. But, uh, but if the government prints it, that's uh, so, um, um, is there an historical precedent I mean, your your coverage of the history across your books is extraordinary for this level of currency creation. Yeah, actually, there is, like I, I said, and it was basically during wartime. But it was only for and it's only for a short period because if you recall the discussion in my second book, it's all about supply and demand. If there's demand, everyone wants to put ten thousand dollars in a coffee can. If that is what everyone demands, and they went down to the bank and withdrew ten thousand dollars, if it doesn't exist, you're gonna have to create the money to give it to them, right? You're actually under legal obligation to deliver it. So you can get away with it sometimes, but eventually everyone's coffee yeah. can is full and they said, okay, had enough. Some guy comes by, say, you know, passing more bills around. Well, if your coffee can's full, then what do you do? Well, you got some more bills, you spend it, <laughs> right? And that's kind of when the process of currency decline happens. It's not quite that simple. It's a complicated topic, but you have a sophisticated audience and we have lots of time, so let's get into it. Where does the money go? These metaphor is a bit like circulating around the economy like a liquid. It's not really true. Somebody has it. They either have it at home in a coffee can or it's in the bank. Um, I mean, I don't mean bank deposits, but banks themselves have some kind of money, which is basically a deposit at the central bank these days. And banks, just as people at home have money in a coffee can, that's bank's coffee can, right? That's the, that's the money, is their, is their account at the central bank. In the past, banks held about 10% of their assets at the central bank. And sometimes it was 5%, sometimes in, in wartime it was 20%, but it was like 10%. And what happened was between about, well, it was really since about 1950 to 2008, banks had one way after another of bringing that amount down because if they could reduce the amount of cash on their balance sheet, and it substitute interest-bearing debt of some sort, they could make more money. And they got to the point of all this like very, you know, mm -hmm. decades of increasing sophistication where after 2000, they had like just like this tiny, tiny amount of, of cash. It's like us today, right? Well, we, we go, we walk out the door with 40 bucks and, and five credit cards, right? That's what banks are like. Well, I only got 40, you know, the only way it works is if your five credit cards work. Well, in 19, 2008, all the banks got their credit cards canceled and they only had 40 bucks and they're in a bad, and they're in a, you know, they had to pay the rent. And so they go, oh, uh, bad idea. Well, then they had this long involved process where they got back to their old standard of having 10% of assets in the form of cash. And that required, central banks don't really talk about this, but I'm sure they know about it because banks know about it. And it's actually all codified in Basel III and, and they've talked about it for years. And central banks had to create that money, right? All the banks need this much money. Well, if it doesn't exist, you have a problem. So they had to create it. 
so that banks would have it. Uh, and that's basically what happened between 2009, when there's, a, you know, there's kind of been some, some, been some ups and downs, but um, even up to this year, that's why, at least in the case of the United States, the central bank uh, balance sheet expansion that took place in this year kind of topped up that unfulfilled demand, if you will. And, and so everyone who hasn't followed this narrative doesn't know about it, which is 99.999% of the people look at it and say, we, we just printed, you know, we've spent the last 10 years printing $5 trillion with no consequences. Let's do it again. <laughs> and yeah. So now, so that's kind of what we're dealing with now. And I think now this six month period is where we are kind of going beyond that framework. The demand for banks is not obvious. They could actually, they could actually take on more and they have in crisis times during wartime and so forth. But I'm not, I'm not persuaded that they want to do that. So at what point does the music stop? Like when I listen to you, what does, what does an MMT purist really believe that you can just indefinitely stimulate an economy by creating currency at what point does the music stop i mean i was talking to somebody recently who's just well he just said they've, they'll inflate it away it's just going to magically yeah something for nothing <laughs> anyway for cosmic level right violates all 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 of the conservation of mass and energy yeah yeah it does in fact, it does. You know, the, the basic transaction that was going on was was we give you something that you value, namely money, in return for goods and services. That's how it worked. But if you don't if you don't want the money anymore, that's when the that's when the game starts to not to work anymore, right? If you want ten thousand dollars in your coffee can, then you are going to work and to get the money and not spend it, you're going to put it in your coffee can, right? Only got five thousand. I want five thousand more, right? You're going to work, take the money. And not spend it. But you get when your coffee can's full, you say, "Oh, I went to work. I got some money. My coffee can's full. Let's go to the restaurant." Right? That's when it doesn't work anymore, right? And at what at what point does does hyperinflation happen? Like if you are just increasing the money supply? Yeah, hyperinflation is kind of a strong word. We're 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 not really at that stage yet. But we have some of the important ingredients. And I think that's worth thinking about. We had a lot of inflation around the world in the 1970s, but we didn't have, it wasn't like it is today. And at the end of the 60s, yeah. debt to GDP ratios were quite low. You know, it's 30% around the world in developed economies. Deficits were pretty much balanced. You know, they didn't have this chronic deficits that we have today. They didn't have, they don't have the, the social spending, you know, the social security, Medicare, which is responsible for those big deficits was much smaller in those days. So... There's my, in, the, in these terms of the uh, United States political discussion, it was discretionary, right? You could cut it. <laughs> you can't, you know, it's, 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 a very, it's a big political process to cut Medicare or Social Security. So you didn't have the issues that you have today. You know, in the 1970s, inflation uh, was not a let's print money to pay the bills situation. It was something, it was something, it was Keynesian, you know, it was economic manipulation. It was something else that was going on. When it ended too, in the 1970s, you had Volcker going to you know, like 18% interest rates, which, you know, these, and the reason, one of the reasons they can do that is because the debt to GDP ratio is so low that even paying 12% on their debt, governments weren't going to go bust, right? They didn't have 150, you pay 12% on 120% of GDP debt, you're paying 15% of GDP in interest payments, right? Things are, you know, things are just getting going. This is like, you know, this is like 1971, uh, you know, in, in, 
in terms of timing. But we have different ingredients this time. And the different ingredients are we are printing money to finance deficit. And we're not just doing that. We're also saying, well, since we're printing the money anyway, let's also have a huge deficit. We're not trying to cut the deficit, right? We're, go we're going all just like added on 10% of for nothing. So these, you know, these are very new political, it's, it's yeah. all political. These are very new political ingredients. And this is what you see in hyperinflation situations. Hyperinflations happen because governments can't stop printing money. They can't stop printing money because if they don't print the money, they don't have the money. If they don't have the money. They can't pay the government employees and they don't pay the government employees. The military, uh, you know, comes and boots them out <laughs> or whatever happens, right? You have chaos. Well, I was listening to where I sort of part of how my journey started was I was training for a marathon and I was running here at 4 a.m. in midwinter listening to a lot of audio books. And I think I was listening to George Gilder and he referenced that, you know, the famous line that in the long run, we're all dead. And, and I wonder, like that really struck me. I remember where I was on the run when I f first thought, Political expediency seems to suggest that basically, right? If you're a politician, you're you're two terms at best, right? Mm -hmm. So the music just can't stop on your watch. Is is that what's happening? Like when you talk about there's no incentive to cut deficits, really, because you don't want to be the guy or the girl that turns the music off. I mean, doesn't that create a political system where the can is kicked down the road until it eventually? You know, until the I whole agree. thing collapses, and and you know, and what what you see, uh, you know, I, if you want to talk some 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 red flags, I think we're not we're not. This is not describing the current situation, but it's something that we might get into in about I would say maybe about four years. Is when you start to have like pretty intense inflation, like nineteen, you know, like late late seventies kind of inflation, not hyperinflation, but you have to you know you have to have a few steps before then. Well, first of all, you just can't roll the debt, right? Governments not only have to issue new debt to fund their deficits, but they have to roll the existing debt, right? It's easy to forget about that. They have to each sell new bonds. And, that, and, and if you know, you're in a 10% inflation scenario and, and they want to sell bonds at 2%, you're going to say, no, thanks. They can't put a 10% coupon on it because then the deficit blows out. So the, the central bank buys it. It's not even just the deficit, but the debt side of it. And the other thing that tends to happen somewhere down the line is tax revenues just collapse. There's a number of reasons for this. For example, often you pay taxes a year after the activity that is taxed, and then you can delay it six months. Well, everyone starts to calculate at the same time. They say, well, if I delay it six months, money's going to be worth half of what it's worth today. So I'll delay it six months. So where does the money go? It's six months down sure. the line. Yeah. And when you get it, it's only worth half as much. And so the government now has, you know, the tax revenues collapse instead of tax revenues funding 80% of spending and 20% deficit. Now tax revenues cover 30% of spending and you have a 70% deficit, right? And so the government said, well, we have a choice. Either we're going to cut spending by 70%, which is, you know, like, ha. Huh. How does that work? Or the central bank's going to print the money. And we got to decide in two weeks, right? <laughs> We're not going to debate it for a month, for a year. It's just going to happen in the next yeah. two weeks because we got to make payroll somehow. <laughs> so when you, when, you look at those, when you look at the macro at the moment and you see, I mean, the Dow broke 30,000 for the first time since 1896. Uh, and that's happening amidst a global pandemic, much higher unemployment, so many fundamentals under pressure. How is how can this not be a series of extraordinary bubbles? Like here in Australia today, real estate's just powering ahead. Uh, I sold a few positions last week and haven't really told my wife yet because they've just kept going up. And I'm like, so 
how, how is no one asking the how how can we be seeing equity markets going through the ceiling under these fundamentals? Markets are very strange these days. It, they're difficult to explain because you, just as everybody knows, they're the most expensive we've ever seen. And bond markets too, the most expensive we've ever seen. But in the past, when you had really high valuations, you had really great growth, right? You know, you'd have five, you have five percent growth, and everyone's dry, dr- drawing trend lines to the sky, right? Well, it's okay. We pay thirty times earnings today because earnings are going to be three times higher five years from now, which is typically when you get you know PE ratios over twenty five across the whole market. But today, that's cold scenario is out the window. So what's going on? It doesn't look very good. I think there's a lot of factors, I think. But one of the things I think is going on is you've got the entire global asset management industry that's kind of like in this asset allocation indexing kind of model. And if you don't buy bonds, and if you, you think there is potential for inflation or something like that, then you have to buy stocks. Doesn't matter what the price is. Doesn't matter what the valuation is. You're just moving the money around, right? I mean, the sensible thing is to buy gold. The sensible thing is to buy do something else, but they can't do the sensible thing. It's not in their. It's not in their. Not one of the the buttons they're allowed to push, right? And is this all algorithmically driven? Is that what you're alluding to? That there's so much of the trading is you know high volume or algorithmically based. That well, I'm thinking more of, of kind of like you know the the realities of the of other people's money business, the institutional asset management. Uh, business where nobody makes a decision about asset allocation. <laughs> so you get asset markets, which have silly you know, valuations. I think there are other things going on. A, a friend of mine who ran a macro hedge fund had an interesting comment, which stuck with me. And he, and he said, you got to understand, people in Europe don't care about stocks because they haven't set up their social economic system that where stocks matter. Stocks are like, you know, play things for rich people. And so bonds matter. And so what do we see in Europe? Bonds driven, you know, stu- stupid high prices, right? My negative interest rates, all this stuff, right? Everyone, every, old bonds are, everything's locked down on bond land, right, in Europe. And, and the central bank is very involved in the whole process. But he said, but in the U.S., we've built all these structures based on stocks, basically things like pension funds and 401ks and all this stuff. And just, you know, just, it's just more of an equity mm-hmm. culture in the, United, in the United States than there is in elsewhere in the world. And so his opinion was that stocks are being managed much like bonds are managed in Europe because so much depends on it. You know, if the stock market went down 50%, two things. One, it'd still be highly valued, even half half today's prices still would be on the on the expensive mm-hmm. side of things. And two, every underfunded state pension plan in the country would have to wave the white flag. The day of reckoning would come, right? They would just be so underwater, mark to market, that hard decisions would have to be made, and that that is you know one of many things, or or just all the all the retirees you know, boomers retiring who would see their four hundred one k's cut in half and all this kind of stuff. So that was that's an, that was his opinion. He thought he you know which I tend to agree with too that the situation is probably more heavily managed than is commonly accepted. As in too big to fail. As in politicians are simply not prepared to let the market yeah correct uh there's there's things being done that are not obvious which are you know keeping things up essentially just like just like negative you know bonds trading at negative yields for an extended period of time in europe never seen before in all of human history how did that happen i mean we know it's been it's being managed somehow i did the um crypto economics program at oxford i wanted to ask you there's a suggestion that the fed is looking to create obviously their own cbdc the central bank digital currency and give every u.s citizen an account and then 
it, because they want to drive velocity of money, right? So they put fifteen hundred dollars of Fed coin into a C, into your into individuals' accounts and say you got two weeks to spend it. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about the possibility of that and what the implications are. And I guess related to that is the whole cryptocurrency space. I can't imagine that governments and central banks are going to allow cryptocurrencies a free run. I mean, if you've been in the business for centuries of controlling currency printing and you've got a genuine competitor, I mean, as a payment rail, it's terrible. But so I guess I wanted to ask you about those two things. Do you think that central banks may move to bypass the commercial banking space and put money direct into people's hands and push the velocity of money? And what's your thoughts on whether or not politicians and federal banks, federal, sorry, central banks will allow cryptocurrencies to survive? It's not a bad idea. It, you know, it's it's actually what banks themselves have had for since the beginning of the Fed. That's what the Federal Reserve is, right? It's it's central bank digital currencies for banks since 1913. It's what it is. And it's just the, it's, the only difference is now you get your own account. It's not a bad idea. I start to not like it when they say, oh, and we're going to get rid of cash, right? Because I, I th- <laughs> you say, well, I don't use cash. You know, I, I use my credit card for 95% of payments today or whatever. So what's the difference? Well, I, I, you know, cash is kind of like the second amendment of money, right? It, it keeps them from, because you have the option of using cash, just like you have the option of picking up your AR-15, it keeps people, you know, makes them behave themselves and then you don't have to use it. So I like, you know, if, if you were talking about things much being much the same as they are today, plus central bank digital currencies, I, you know, it'd probably be okay. But then once you have that, you open up, you know, there's, there's quite a few things you can start to do with it. Like you can start to do negative interest rates and you can, which you can't do with cash, right? If cash exists, you can, and you can start to, you know, restrict people's payments for something and, and that kind of thing. Once you don't have a cash alternative, then it gets pretty creepy pretty fast. And clearly they want, they want to go that way. And we might see that as soon as the first quarter of next year in Europe. When you say that word creepy, I've also heard that they're putting money direct into a, you know, everybody's got their own central bank wallet. The ability of government to turn that off at any point. Yeah. I mean, it's programmable dollars, right? So your point point being that if you've got a $50 bill in your pocket, you can get petrol wherever you want. But I guess what I'm getting at is that I don't want to sort of create a massive seller dwelling conspiracy theory. But if you look at the Chinese social credit system, as soon as we have programmable dollars, if if in any way you're a transgressor of any form and whatever yeah. that means, the ability to turn your money off, like for government to government to literally go, well, we don't want you leaving your town, so you're you're not going to be able to fill your car in another city. Like hey, 12, 12 months ago, getting blocked on Twitter was ridiculous. Like, what is that? What are you talking about? Yeah. I can't tweet <laughs> my opinion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It sounds ridiculous today, but in twelve months, it could be just normal. Right? Well, yeah. You know, you shot your mouth off on Twitter. Now you can't spend money for two weeks. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? And and this, and the related question of: Do you think politicians and central banks will allow rival cryptocurrencies to survive? Well, look at what you have now. You have the stable coins, which are actually kind of interesting, but not that widely adopted, actually. Which will be obviously replaced by the central bank digital currencies. Right? They'll be more competitive, and, and be, they'll basically you know hmm. be free. There's no transaction costs. And then you've got the whole the whole space of alternative stable coins like a gold link stable coin or some kind of currency basket stable coin like um, um, Libra was going to be that all got yeah. killed by regulation you know the SEC and, yeah. and other regulatory bodies say well this is a heck of a like a mutual fund or an ETF how's it not different how's it different than a mutual fund and no one had a good answer so they said well it is and so yeah. 
it basically just killed that entire business overnight. So the you know so so the prospects for sort of alternative stablecoins not looking very good. And then you've got the kind of Bitcoin things, which are obviously not a mutual fund because it has nothing. It's a, you know it's a it's a box of box of air minus the air. There's a lot of problems with those. For one thing, they're just they're just not suited for transactions. And you can go on and on and on about how how yeah. all the stupid things about them. I think they are they they do have some feasibility, maybe a role, not as currency, not as money. But just as sort of like a, a transactable thing of mutually accepted value. And I, I say mutually accepted value because it doesn't have an intrinsic value like a company or gold, arguably. But I think it's like modern art. You know, what's the intrinsic value of an R&D Warhol print? And why do they trade for $5 million? Well, I don't know. But mm-hmm. if you could trade Andy Warhol prints electronically in fractional sizes, that might be interesting, <laughs> right? And the other thing about uh, cryptocurrencies is now the regu- the regulation regarding even the Bitcoins and the Ethers and stuff is getting pretty success- sophisticated. So, you know, the blockchain records every transaction ever, ever made. If you have one connection between yeah. an individual and the address, then anyone, <laughs> anyone, anyone has access to the data knows all the transactions that account has ever made. Yeah. And every time you open yeah. an account at, at, a, at a Bitcoin exchange, or every time you use Bitcoin in a, in a tra- if, you, if, you, if it were possible to buy a box of pencils on Amazon with Bitcoin, well, immediately that Bitcoin, to, to verify that you paid it, they would know your address, <laughs> right? And it would be linked on Amazon. Of course, Amazon's going to tell the Amazon, say, yeah. well, just one time you, buy, you, know, you revealed the owner of the address, the government knows everything that account has ever done. And now there's, there was, yeah. there's a company called uh, uh, Chainalysis. There's, I'm sure there's many of these companies, but one is, one, a biggie is called Chainalysis. Just raised $100 million to expand its business. Already has 350 customers, including governments, including the US federal government, uh, just participated in a Department of Justice crackdown that busted crypto holders for over a billion dollars. Whatever you're doing, chain mm-hmm. analysis is going to figure it out, and the Department of Justice is going to pay for them to figure it out, and you're going to get busted. <laughs> the only hope is that you could be in some foreign jurisdiction. You say, "Well, ha ha ha, I ran away to Paraguay." Well, as we know from all the you know the anti money laundering laws around the world, which have appeared in the last twenty or thirty years. Yeah. It doesn't take that long for the government of the United States to put pressure on the government of Paraguay and say, you know what? You don't want us to be your enemies. Hand that guy over. We know who he is. He's busted. Put him on a plane. Yeah, sure. And, and we can still be friends. <laughs> so there's nowhere to run. Do you think, like in terms of what we talked about with CBDCs, do you think there's an inherent right to financial privacy as i as we talk it's like the as this landscape shifts it's like you know what, what's the old joke what's the um if you ask a, a centralist what's the answer to every problem more centralization do we have a right to financial privacy do we do we do you think that's a, an inherent inalienable thing that people should be free to within reason yeah basically it's basically the fourth the fourth uh, amendment mm. in the united states uh, privacy of unreasonable search and seizure of your papers, which means you can, you know, the, the idea was you couldn't just break into a guy's office and go through all his records looking for crimes, right? Well, now you don't have to break into office. It's all yeah. on blockchain. Well, on the Constitution, is it true that the Constitution states that, that nothing will be currency other than gold and silver, right? Is that correct at the US Constitution? It actually says gold and silver coin. It actually excludes all paper money in, in the Constitution itself, which was always ignored. Well, this is the thing I wanted to get to now, the second part of the magic formula being stable stable money, which is, 
you know, obviously you've written so well about across your books. So my understanding thus far, looking at, say, people like Mike Maloney, is that every fiat currency in human history, without exception, without a single exception, has gone to zero. Every fiat currency with a debt-to-GDP ratio over 100 or triple figures has always gone to zero. Is the first truth that the US dollar will eventually, I mean, based on history, collapse? Do you see that a point where that will happen? The history of paper currencies, it's, 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 you almost, it's pretty bad. It's uniformly bad. One of the amazing things that Britain did and America did after the Constitution, but not before, is they had paper currencies that didn't blow up because all of them blew up beforehand. You go to you know Japan in the 17th century, paper currencies were blowing up all the time. United States in the, 17th, in the 18th century, currency, paper currencies blowing up constantly, right? The first government paper currency in the United States is, or America, 1690, colony of Massachusetts printed money to pay the soldiers. Of course, ended worthless. So yeah, the, the history is pretty bad. And the, the amazing thing that Britain did was to break that cycle of disaster. And eventually, governments around the world imitated them toward the end of the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century. United States first, and then Germany and France and all these other places. And now, you know, since 1971, essentially, we, we are going back to the, the norm. <laughs> On the other hand, though, to, to set aside very gloomy, doomy expectations, unfortunately, unfortunately, countries can get into a cycle of just kind of constant depreciation for a long, long time. The currency might end up being worth only a millionth of what it was worth before, but it doesn't matter. It, it just can keep going. You know, it's not a hyperinflationary scenario, but it's a situation where there's just one devaluation, depreciation after another, and you know, 20, 30% CPI numbers just become the norm for decade after decade. If you look at the history of, of the Turkish lira or the Indian rupee, or you know, take the Italian lira. The Italian lira used to be the worth, worth the same as French franc, was, which was worth about one hundredth of an ounce of gold in nineteenth century. But it's pretty reliable, reliable currency. And then, if you remember, just before when they when they transitioned to the to the euro, one euro was worth I don't know, you know, twenty seven hundred lira, right? Well, that's pretty bad. But yeah. we never say, oh, there was hyperinflation in Italy. No, they just kind of. It just kind of went down bit by bit for 100 years. <laughs> so unfortunately, you can get into those kind of situations too, where it's just continuous stinko. So let's talk the gold standard. So this mm -hmm. is something that you've devoted a huge part of your life to and something that I've just become very interested in over recent times. So do you see a future where the US dollar is backed by gold again? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think we're going to have a chance. Uh, and I, I've, I've been quite aware of this for a while. Um, that's why I, I actually, as I kind of implied in the last chapter of the book, The Magic Formula, which came out last year, I saw that we're going to have a, I think we're going to have a crisis period. And I didn't think there was, I didn't know there was going to be COVID and all this stuff. But, you know, you pile up this much firewood, something catches on fire. If you read the book, The Fourth Turning and all this stuff, everyone, everyone's read that these days. And I said, you know, well, the firewood's all piled up. Nothing I do about that. I can't say, you know, oh, take away all the firewood, fix, fix all the problems, right? No, I, I can't do that. No one's going to do that. But what you can do is, is when you get to the point where people are ready for new solutions, as the world was in 1945, for example, right? All, everything else was on fire and rubble. Like, well, let's make, let's build new things, right? They had the Bretton Woods, they had the IMF, they had the United Nations. Many of the yeah. things kind of, kind of spooky, evil things. But nevertheless, you know, they had the CIA, you had the 
military industrial complex, whatever, right? You start to build all these new things. When I, I wrote the book, because when it was time to build new things, we had to have a blueprint. And you're, and you're dealing with well, you're dealing with people like Donald Trump in the middle of a crisis, right? So you can't say, oh, it comp it's very complicated. Go study for your PhD and get back to me. <laughs> it's like, no, four words. <laughs> Low taxes, stable money, go do it. Good luck. <laughs> had to be real simple. So that's kind of where that comes from. So I see there's going to be, an, I think there's going to be opportunity, right? And this wasn't true in 2019, right? But it's true now. We're just like high on crack. We can print, we can just have a 16% of GDP deficit and the Fed's going to cover it and everyone's, and everyone's happy. And we can just do this again and again. <laughs> okay. Well, eventually something's going to happen. And you're going to have to have an, you're going to have to have a new solution. At that point, they're going to. I think you know you're going to say, well, what are we going to do? We're going to have a central bank full of the same kind of guys that just made a mess of everything, right? Just this, just the, these PhDs bickering to each other about gobbledygook, and we're all going to like you know rely on that. <laughs> no, so you know that is historically when you get interest in gold standard system. What you often find is that the people who like gold standard systems are the people who had hyperinflations. You know, why did the U.S. have the lie in the Constitution that only gold and silver coins are money? Well, it's because they had a hyperinflation, the paper money hyperinflation, 1780s. They knew that. It didn't work, right? Like, no, we're not going to do that. As I mentioned, you know, the first thing that Mao Zedong did when the communists take over China is he instituted gold standard because the nationalist government had hyperinflation. Yeah. You know, and you had trillion dollar banknotes. There's going to be support for that. Who will drive that? The common people in the United States, just the same as common people all over the world, in China, in Afghanistan, in Nigeria, they all know gold works. They just know it. And they all know that all these central bankers, hmm. blah, blah, blahing on TV is not really in their interest. <laughs> they just know that, right? Because that's been that's been true for five thousand years, and so that that support that support has always been there. But you but you needed you needed the brains, you needed you needed the you know you needed the Thomas Jeffersons and the James Madisons to to make the policy and make the government institutions and to make the thing work. You need the brains, you know, to 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 do that. So I kind of wrote a book for them, the the people who would be charged with building a system like this that didn't blow up. And is it true that? Historically, mm. when a gold standard is re-established, that it absorbs all the excess currency in the system. So the gold price is set by the, the, the money supply, right? Is that correct? Like, it, my understanding was that if you, yeah, once you re-establish a gold system, you have to account. Gold has to account for all that currency washing around the system. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's kind of legendary horseshit from the mid-20th century. I say look at the historical examples and, and, the, and the most... Relevant historical examples are of the 1920s. In, 19, in World War I, all the major currencies in the yep. world, and most all the minor ones too, became floating currencies. Many of them had hyperinflation, and the entire global gold standard system was rebuilt after 1919, beginning with the US dollar. And so we have this, we have, you know, dozens of examples of countries going from fiat, sometimes hyperinflation, sometimes not hyperinflation, but dramatic devaluations as France had, as Italy had, going back to gold standard system. So you can look at it. What do they do? What are the characteristics? 
And this story of like, oh, we have to, you know, we take the amount of gold you have in the vault and divide by, you know, the number of banknotes you have. That didn't happen, right? That never happened. Uh, you know, or you'd say, oh, you have to have 100%, you know, reserve coverage. No, you don't. That never happened. None, no country had 100% reserve coverage, right? They all went back. They were all successful. They just, but they didn't do that. And, or Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods basically reestablished the world gold standard system. And, and, and it functionally, and it, but there was a lot of like, there was, it was pretty rocky the first five years. But really in 1950, around 1950, it really kind of locked into place. You know, Germany, Japan, China, all in hyperinflation, all went to gold standard in 1949, 1950, um, plus Britain and the Western world. And once again, all these things that people say, oh, you have to do it this way. No, you don't. That never happened. So what happens is you, you pick a number, a sensible number for the value of the currency. And there are a couple of ways you can do this, which I kind of, which I wrote a chapter about in the book, but it's, you know, you basically pick a sensible number. For the United States, it was $35 an ounce, which was also the pre-war number. And then you, then you manage it. You know, it's kind of like an open-ended thing, but you just do what you have to do to keep the value of the currency at that level. And it's also, that's what a gold standard is. It's, it's just a system that maintains the value of a currency according to a benchmark. It doesn't have to be gold. It could be silver. It could be a currency basket. You know, all these stable coins, you know, all these cryptocurrencies that were coming out until the SEC made things difficult for them. It's all exactly the same thing, right? Why does the ETF of the, the S&P 500 have the same value as the S&P 500? Yes. Anyone ever, ever asked that? <laughs> well, basically they do exactly the same thing as the gold ETF does, <laughs> which also maintains, you know. So, that, so when you understand the yeah. methods that actually all these systems use, you know, the, the GLD ETF, the SPY ETF, gold standard system, it's all the same thing. Uh, and I wrote a whole book about it, which is the second book, Gold and Monetary Polaris. So it's it's very important yeah. that somebody somewhere has a good grasp of that. And I, I've kind of reached out to the crypto guys because the economists are knuckleheads. <laughs> but the crypto guys are a bunch of computer guys. They're, su they're super smart and they don't know anything and they're willing to learn. And, pr and people who are smart and willing to learn can figure it out mm -hmm. in about three days. <laughs> And once you get a mass of people, 100 people, 1,000 people who are involved in cryptocurrency, stable coins or something like that, who say, yeah, that's how you do it, then you've got that critical mass of, of societal knowledge to make these things happen. Do you think there's something inherent to gold? Are you a, a true believer in the sense that there is something truly unique to gold? That I mean, history suggests, uh, is it simply a case of it, it's... it's done its job, it's, it's functioned all throughout these key moments of history, but do you see it as a as a particularly unique commodity that has an intrinsic link to, you know, human political economy? Gold does have certain characteristics which have been commented on many times. If, if you look at all the things in the world, there are not really that many that can serve at the same function the same way of being, you know, having high value and being extremely durable and so forth, subdivisible and all, the, all these things people have talked about. But that does, alone does not explain gold's sort of almost magical qualities. And ultimately, I think it's because humans need something that serves as the Polaris, the North Star, something that serves the role of money as something of stable value. They somehow created it. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's a bit of a mystery how exactly that mm -hmm. happened, but they did. And, and to, get, to give an example, for thousands of years, the price of the value of silver was quite closely linked to gold. And it had some long-term variation, but the short-term variation was pretty mm. small. Year to year, it was, was very minor. And if it went from, you know, 12 to 1 to, to 16 to 1 over 200 years, like, oh, 
That looks like a big deal for us today. But if you were living there, you'd have a whole lifetime where it went from 12 to 1 to 13 to 1. And you'd be telling your kids about, wow, that was all okay. They were silver's at 12 to 1 versus gold. No one would care, right? So it was amazing. Silver for thousands of years was amazingly stable yeah. versus gold. And then something strange happened in the 1870s, which is an interesting discussion. And then it wasn't for the first time ever. And so how, you know, how does that happen? And so basically, because humans needed a small denomination version of gold, you know, you, you couldn't, you know, a gold coin, you just can't do much with it because it's worth a thousand dollars, right? <laughs> Most people made a thousand dollars an entire year. <laughs> um, so they needed a small denomination money. And so they somehow made it. And it was true all over the world, right? It was true in Asia, it was true in Africa, it, it's true in India, all over the world, silver had this quality. Some, without any kind of government agreements or private agreements, it just did it. I think gold still does that. You need something with those qualities and somehow we made it. Oddly enough, it's kind of mystical, but unlike a hundred economists' goofy ideas that they got sitting on the potty, it actually works. So what are your thoughts on ETFs? Like I've heard, like I, I've got a position in ETFs, but I'm like gold was private citizens, as you know, in the US couldn't hold gold. What up till, it was 1974. Right, that yes. was repealed right, right. wasn't it was it 74 under gerald ford so the thesis that if governments decided they didn't want private citizens accessing gold your etfs could be shut down also it's kind of a fingers crossed that the fund managers actually do have access to the physical gold are you relatively confident that etfs are, are still a good vehicle i don't like them the gld etf in particular uh, i don't know if you follow these things very closely but the cfos keep resigning there's you know <laughs> It's okay. very spooky, and the thing has performed well, right? It's fulfilled all its all its promises. I would look into other ETFs. I, I, I personally am for, uh, if you're looking, if you want an ETF, the Sprott Physical Gold ETF, um, just because I uh, I know those you know those guys tend to be more reliable. Um, it, it, it is actually redeemable in bullion for the small investor. You can actually take your hundred shares, turn it in, you get a coin which is kind of amazing. When you look at the macro now, I mean, my thesis is simply a strong position in physical precious metals, a relatively strong cash position, should there be a significant correction. Can you poke holes in that for the average the average punter, as we say here in Australia, given what's what, what, the, what the macroeconomic outlook looks like over the next decade or so? I, I tend to favor a similar position. I you know, have a lot of gold and cash. It's, you know, it, it's not very exciting. Um, but it's pretty, but it's pretty durable, right? When things go goofy, the main thing is to survive. If you survive, you 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 end up in the top ten percent. You're a big winner just by getting to the other side with most of your wealth intact, and that is the main thing. You might, you know, you might make more profits in Bitcoin or junior miners or a thousand other things, but but you might also get blown up along the way. Um, or something might happen. If there's one thing I would, you know, apply a little caution in, it's tempting now to say, oh, I don't want stocks because they're super expensive. I don't want bonds because they're super expensive. I think that there can be a tendency to hold too much cash. And we're, we're getting into a situation where if you hold too much cash for too long, you're going to get killed. It's gonna, it not, won't necessarily go to yeah. zero, but it might go 95% of the way to zero. And so, and so if you look around at things, things beside gold that are pretty interesting, I think there are uh, a, a number of individual situations in the stock market, not necessarily inflation related. You know, obviously, wow, gold miner. Okay, yeah, it's the same trade, right? But if, if you look at things that are not the same trade, there are a number of situations, I think, just, you know, just widows and orphan stocks 
like an electric power company, you know, beer maker, something like that. It, you know, it's a real simple, stable thing. I, I like, I tend to like mobile phone companies. You know, no one's going to cancel a contract. They're pretty stable businesses. They generate a lot of cash, yeah. and you, and you can buy, you can get them at like a ten percent earning. I tend to use the term earnings yield more often these days to compare to bonds. You know, ten times earnings, ten percent earnings, earnings yield, and they have some inflation protection. If you have ten years of inflation, they'll probably just jack up the prices, and everything will be kind of like you know in line with the CPI. And if you look at it as a inflation protected bond playing ten percent, that's pretty interesting. More than cash, yeah. maybe more than gold. So I, I tend to look, and also in the sense of diversification, just not have everything be the same trade. Uh, I th- I, t- I tend to think some situations like that are are uh, worthwhile these days. We did really well on the uh, the Vanek ETFs. They're they're an ETF. The underlying is esports and gaming and computer gaming companies. Because when COVID hit, I thought <laughs> there's just going to be so many people just sitting there. Because I didn't realize esports is uh, is bigger than the NBA now. It's like. I was talking to my wife and my, I'm going, look, look at these people sitting here. They're playing computer games. So the ETF, there's now there's a solid ETF. And I thought <laughs> if the economy completely tanks, there's a whole lot of people are still going to be wanting their play, still be sitting on PlayStation and yeah. Xbox. So something I, I meant to ask you at the start, you're a real historian of these great sort of historical movements in finance and gold. Why? What attracted you to the space? Why, of all the things you could have done with your life, how did you end up doing this? Yeah, well, it's just kind of, it ultimately it's just kind of destiny. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that I was, you know, destined yeah. to do this stuff. And, and there's a reason why people don't do this stuff. And the reason is, is that it's very hard to make any money at it, <laughs> which means that it was not done. And what it, what it came down to is I recognize the, the importance of these things, as I think you do. But, you know, basically, if, if I didn't write these books, then no one was going to do them or they would do them badly. Um, you know, there's not many people who can do yeah. it. And so I can tell you what, kind of where it comes from. A lot of, especially my first book in, in particular, I came to understand that there was this little group of supply siders from the 80s who had this amazing knowledge, but... It was all. It was. It was. It was like the oral tradition. It was literally like the African tribesmen oral tradition. You sit down with the master for about a year, and he tells it to you over a cup of coffee. <laughs> literally that. And uh, and if you look at if you if you read Jack Kemp's biography, it tells you that Jack Kemp did that. You know, like just like I'm describing. Or if you read you know Jude Winiski and and, and Robert Mandel. And, yeah. and the reason why that happened that way is because in, in those days, you know, you didn't have the internet. They would occasionally write op-eds, but just writing a thousand words, you know, you, can, you can't say very, no one, no one learns very much from that. And unless you write books, it's not going to spread beyond that little circle. And if at some point the chain might be broken, right? You just, does the knowledge just doesn't get transmitted. So, so especially the first book, I wanted to, I brought up some of the tax issues, you know, the Tax issues, but those were better understood. Even though, even there, the sort of the great post nineteen eighty post Reagan book was never written. I think, and I wanted to get into the monetary side because that was that was an important thing that was just not understood at all. In the eighties, you tended to get people who were low tax guys, even maybe Democrats, but they just didn't get the monetary stuff at all. You know, on on the right, it tended to be Milton Friedman monetarists, and a lot of the gold standard advocates of that time, up to two thousand, let's say. They had their heart in the right place, but they didn't have a clue. They just—it was just one stupid thing after another, and they're just no. They're everyone knew everyone. The reason why I had such a terrible reputation, everyone said, "I oh, are like some kind of kook." Was everyone could tell they weren't ready for prime time. Everyone could tell that they're you know just 
they didn't have the chops, the, the mastery of these topics. They, they had the right idea, but they didn't, yeah. have, they didn't have the mastery. As, as, I, as, I, as I like to say, you know, we could say, well, yeah, airplane's great. If you're going to fly from New York to Los Angeles, definitely use an airplane, right? Definitely use gold standard. But unless someone knows how to build an airplane yeah. down to the real engineering of it, then you're just, you know, yeah. you're just sitting around talking about airplanes, right? <laughs> you need someone who, who's, who, who to, to make the thing work. Well, as I read your stuff and as I talk to you, I think for me at the basis of it all is that it, it's about human flourishing and the common good. Like if we build systems that, uh, and me coming to this so late, I, I, I just think I thought that most politicians right. <laughs> and central bankers are reasonably good actors and maybe they are. I don't know, but I just kind of, I said to my wife, I said, I don't want to sound like that crazy guy living in his mum's basement, but I think there's some pretty bad people doing some pretty bad things with the global monetary system that maybe they shouldn't be doing. <laughs> She's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And linked to that was this idea that when, when people produce goods and services that people actually want, you know, good things can happen and there's an inherent nobility in work and and business and i think creating the macro structures that that you're putting across here are just central to and i guess maybe it's when you have kids right i also got three young kids and i'm like i actually begin to i think whether they're talking about them being the first generation that'll more than likely have a worse standard of living than their parents in a long time i wanted to ask you a hypothetical so you get a phone call tomorrow morning from president-elect biden he says nathan i just heard this great podcast with jonathan good job he invites you to rebuild the american monetary system with no holes barred gives you he gives you the keys to the fed computer what would you do what would you say to him politically we're in a difficult place because all these things are really entrenched just just like i said right we've we've piled up all the firewood for this if, if you will you know this fourth turning crisis whatever you can't just skip it <laughs> right theoretically you could but in practice you can't and mm -hmm. so i you know i've always I, i'm i've been building all this stuff for it might be pretty soon you know under 10 years when all that stuff doesn't work anymore and you say no well, how do we get ourselves out of this mess you have you would have to stop running deficits <laughs> well how do you do that we're gonna have to you're gonna have to reform everything i see i can just see the pressures building for a step towards in the united states called federalization but it basically returns to the original form of the constitution which is taking all these things that the federal government has started to do, the centralization, and pushing it all back on the states. At some point, you know, you're going, yeah. you know, there's so much. So what do you do? Well, often it's easiest just to fix everything at once. Just rip the Band-Aid off, right? <laughs> and you say, well, just say, as of January 1st of the next year, or if you're really in a crisis next week, tomorrow, all federal welfare programs are done. They're canceled. Just done. No more checks in the mail. Fire all the employees, sell off the offices. They're just done. Say, well, what happens to all the needy people? Say, well, you know, let the state governments decide, right? You can set up whatever system you want. You can impose whatever taxes you want. Do your best. You have a fully functioning government. They actually, I mean, states actually <laughs> doing all this stuff anyway. They're actually the ones that are administering all these federal programs, all these healthcare programs and so forth. So they're all, it's, all, it's all in place already. That would... You know, you basically cut the spending in half right there, maybe more. And then because you cut the spending in half, you're going to have an economy in crisis, right? So, well, how do we get the economy out of crisis? Yeah. You have a huge tax reform. And you can bring up the examples of Germany and Japan and Russia. And if you get into the historical stuff, which I get into. But anyway, 
that's when you bring in your 10% VAT and say, let's just repeal the 16th Amendment, get rid of the income tax, imp- imp- impose a 10% VAT in the United States that basically pays for the military and the national parks and someone to p- stamp your passport at the border. And that's the federal government, which is actually the federal government in the Constitution. That's what the federal government is supposed to be, and it was for most of U.S. history. You know, all this welfare stuff in the United States, except for Social Security, didn't really exist until 1964. <laughs> it was just the military. It's the United States with the military. Yeah. And, yeah. and some public work spending because of the New Deal, but it was, it was pretty small. So we're basically just going back to the model of the Constitution, and you could do it at a stroke, but only when people are ready. And it would be really interesting because the states would then have mandate to take care of these things if they want to, but they would build it from scratch. It would all be brand new, right? It wouldn't be Medicare. It would be something else. Would that create a, a highly mobile population, at least for a while, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> because I noticed that Calif- the, the exodus from California to Texas at the moment is pretty strong. I just finished reading Rothbard's book, uh, Case Against the Fed, and he said that uh, he was quoting somebody, I can't remember who it was, but he, there was this quote where they, the person said the government should only do three things, national defense, enforcement of contracts, and provision of physical safety. So what do you think? <laughs> is, I mean, is, are we in a more complex society where obviously governments have to do much more? Or what do you think the limits of, what do you think governments should do and shouldn't be doing? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And that, that is something that people like you and me should be talking about a lot. Because like I said, I think we're going to have the chance to do it. So we better have a plan. <laughs> because you can't just say, oh, let's just start talking about it for five years. And I, I, I'll tell you what I think. I think we're going to, ideally... We should make, in the United States, we should make the Constitution law again. We have to align what we do with what the document says, which means either we stop doing stuff that's not in the Constitution or we amend the Constitution legally to do the stuff we want to do. And we don't have stuff that's in this gray area of like, oh, we're just doing it even though it says not to do it. And of all the things that we now, we go down a list of, you know, what was in the Constitution that we have to change. And I think there is a place for regulation. I think there's a big problem in the U.S. because we've had all these regulatory agencies which are just like, you know, little totalitarian governments in their in their sphere, which is a problem. And there's too much regulation. There's all these regulatory problems, but we have to have, I think we have to have some regulation, right? And if you're going to have some regulation, it's either going to have to be at the federal level, the state level, or the local level. Obviously, if you make it at the state level, now you have 50 different regulations, Right regulatory frameworks for the United States. And you could say, oh, well, the states can get together and unify, you know, have agreed to share the same regulation so everything's not so complicated. In some places, that probably makes sense. But for a lot of things, it probably makes sense to have a, a official regulatory federal role to be defined and to have some checks and balances and democratic and all the processes of, of government, not just to be this thing yeah. where bureaucrats run wild. So we're going to have to do that. But but all the other stuff, I think there's basically two yeah. things. One is private charity and social services. It'd be nice to see some kind, of, some kind of revival for that. And the other model that's worked very well in the last 50 years is the Provident Fund model, which is basically a mandatory pe- contribution like a payroll tax to a basically a bank account that you own that can be used for certain things. So 
The classic examples are, you know, the so-called privatization of social security, your mandatory 401k, right? 10%. So instead of social security, you put 10% of your assets into this essentially a 401k that you own directly. And there's a lot of advantages for that. And, everyone, and, and that has been discussed for a long time. And many countries use that today. It's very effective. And for healthcare, I, I got very excited about the Singaporean healthcare system. And there is a book about it called The Cure That Works by Sean Flynn, which just came out, I think, last year, which is very good, which describes the Singapore health system, which is amazing. It's basically, and, and basically the, the gist of it is free market healthcare with a mandatory provident fund, so a mandatory contribution to a health savings account that you can use the money to spend on healthcare. And then, and some provision by the government for people with low incomes. And so to, to make a long story short, the Singaporean system, we spend in the United States about 18% of GDP on healthcare. Singapore yeah. spend about 5% of GDP on healthcare and get better results and have universal coverage. And the Singaporean government in, to subsidize and support the lowest incomes, the most needy people, spends about 1.5% yeah. on GDP of tax revenue on supporting on those support systems. Everyone else has their health savings account. The, the current balances yeah. of the health savings accounts, privately owned, Health savings accounts in Singapore is equivalent to five years of healthcare spending. So the average Singaporean has enough money in this account to foot all his bills for five years, which is amazing, right? Uh, like they don't, they don't, they don't have this. Oh, what are we going to do about Medicare things? Like, like I'm set for five years, <laughs> right? Amazing. It's amazing. So the United States in the 19th century model was built on on personal responsibility, right? You got to save your own money for health reform. You got to save your money for retirement. You got to take care of yourself. Well, unfortunately, there's large, always large portion of society that doesn't do that very well, or they tried to and they had bad luck or whatever. And so this is basically mandatory self-responsibility. And it has it, it, worked out to be a pretty good system in a lot of countries. And I think that is a model, you know, that's not, it's not the, you know, the giant European socialist government pays for everything model. Uh, which I think is, is a bad idea going forward. I loved reading in your book, you made the point that as the magic formula is ignored, government grows rapidly, and you sort of made the point that one of the smartest places to be is as close to the government trough as you can. <laughs> I've been saying that to some friends recently. It's extraordinary. Like, the proliferation in Australia of... Uh, commissioners you know we have a, a new commission every week for something here in my in the city here they've just released these new what you call them trash bins in america garbage bins and these new ones are just for green waste so just plant material right they've hired this whole bunch of people that walk around the streets going through your green garbage trash can to make sure that you've only put green waste in there they're actually lifting up the lid looking inside going is that a piece of cardboard right there yeah i just think it, it innovates entrepreneurship too because there's just i think in one of our states here they've added like thirty thousand or forty thousand public sector employees in the last few like two or three years and for me it's like that's 40 i mean we need some public servants but that's forty thousand people who won't be building or creating or doing something else right so well you you, you remember the great stories about the spain <laughs> In the magic form, I, I, I hope you appreciate it as much as I did, because you just get these stories of you know, Spain had this tre this tremendous economic decline, and everyone was leaving for the new world, where they basically, you know, had the government on the other side of the Atlantic. And during this time, the population of Madrid, the capital, went from six thousand to one hundred thousand. <laughs> it was all it was all just as the economy got worse and worse and worse. The number of government parasites grew larger and larger That's and larger right. because that was the only thing, they, the only way they could make a living. They couldn't make a living in the private industry. Well, I remember driving home a few years ago, and this always sticks in my mind because the Australian government had decided to 
focus on female octogenarian islander perspectives on sea level change. So they had to find female Pacific Islanders in their 80s to get their perspectives as 80-year-old women on sea level change. So they flew them to Australia and the final cost of travel, um, stipend payments, hotels was close to $500,000. And I came home and said to Karen, I said, I said, the government is appropriating 45% of my wealth and we're flying. Anyway, it was just funny. I mean, hey, I hope they had a great conference and shared their perspectives, but that was the day that I kind of finally went, the government is spending money on some things that are really just problematic now. There's, there's, you know, people talk about, oh, it's government waste, it's government waste. Well, it's a waste from point of view from a taxpayer, but every dollar goes into someone's pocket. Those $500,000, they went into hotels, they went into airlines, they went into, you know, public employees, they went, all, all that $500,000 went somewhere, except for the octogenarians who probably didn't get a nickel for their work. Every one of those people are feeding at the public trough, right? What's the difference between a hotel getting a $100,000 per person payout, just sticking in their pocket and getting 100,000 per person payout and they got to let some old ladies stay there for a week? What's the difference? There's nothing, right? It's just, it's it's graft either way. (laughs) All that money, there's no waste. That money, not one dime was wasted. It all went into someone's pockets. Well, I like that. I mean, it's that old saying, every dollar finds a home, right? So is it essentially true that as, as stimulus payments crank up, I mean, those dollars have to be pushing equity bubbles, yeah. Basically, it's hard to say. We know what, how, how does how does it, how does that work, right? What's what's the mechanism there? So so that's a little unclear. But but you in the United States, which mirrors other places, you had this funny situation where employment crashed, employment income crashed, but income spiked higher because everyone's getting checks in the mail. So I mean, you actually look at people's incomes. During COVID, you know, the March, April COVID crisis, it, go, it like blasts off, blasts off into space, which is fun, mm. but it's extremely expensive. Is where this is heading, sooner or later, the music stops. You get a currency devaluation leading to hyperinflation until the reestablishment of a new monetary system. And there's just enormous amounts of suffering as that plays out. Is that what happens? It doesn't have to happen that way. We had pretty serious inflation in the 70s, but we didn't have hyperinflation. But I have to say, we we definitely swirling the pot with some hyperinflationary ingredients here. Like I said, the, the, the thing that makes hyperinflation is when governments have to print the money to keep the lights on. Because if you're a government employee, you're just going to make the decision to print the money rather than turn the lights off. <laughs> Until things get so yeah. crazy that... Um, you know, how do these things end? How do these things end? And it's political. They end when they have to end. They end when there's no choice. In Germany, you know, why did hyperinflation in Germany end in November 1923? And it's very simple. It's very, it's very, very simple reason. That month, the farmers harvested the crops. They put the crops in the barn. And they said, I'm not giving you the food unless you give me something besides this paper crap. And there was no food in the cities. And three days, there's going to be civil war. And so then the government fixed it. <laughs> they had a gold standard a week later. A week later, they had a gold standard. Until then, they made all these excuses, right? Oh, we have to print money because of this. We have to do it. It's, we're not really doing what we're doing. It's MMT. It's whatever, you know. All these people are benefiting. No. You know, when there was no more food, there was no more food. 
they fixed it. <laughs> it's funny when, uh, when, you, when it's likely that you're going to get lynched, how creative you can become in a very short space of time. What is the essence of MMT for you? How, 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 if you're at a dinner party with somebody, how do you explain it? The essence of the argument, let's put it this way, is when people say, oh, well, you can print money and you get sanerage income. You get benefit from it and pay the government's bills up to a certain point. And a certain point is when is limitation is inflation, which is what the MMT are saying. Yes, we've been doing that for 100 years. That's what the Fed does, right? The Fed says, we're going to make the money supply this big and we're going to avoid inflation, right? That's what it does. <laughs> That's what it does day after day after day. And they have, they have conferences about it, you know, like, oh, we're, you know, we want to have people, we want people to have enough money, but we won't want too much to be, that would cause inflation. That's what the Fed does. Hmm. All the central banks do that. We already know that. We've been doing that for 100 years. What's the difference for MMT? If you get past it, what, what the difference is, is they link spending directly to government programs. So they said, well, we want X amount of money, trillion dollars uh, for whatever. We're gonna we're gonna relieve student loan debt. We're gonna have universal basic aid. We're gonna have we're gonna fund this program. But well, once you say we're going to fund this program, we are no longer limiting it by inflation. Because what are you gonna do? We're gonna fund the program, and then there's inflation. We're not gonna fund the program, <laughs> right? Is that how it works? You're gonna just turn the lights off on the program. You're gonna have whatever. Everyone gets free steak dinner, and then and then when the CPI is three percent, you turn you turn the switch off. Is that really how your system is going to work? Well, obviously, it's not going to work that way. Just going to, they're just going to print the money and fund the program. <laughs> that is the essence of MMT. I wanted to ask you too, do you see some stability post-January for the US? Do you th see things calming there for at least a short duration? No, I think, I'm guessing. But I think that we are actually in, a, in an election issues aside, a bit of calm now. I have, I have some a gut feel about January being a bit of an inflection point, but I think January things might get start to pick up in a big way. Well, we'll just have to see what happens. It might be, um, there's a lot of talk coming out of Europe that they're going to try to fix things in January because in Europe, there's a lot of governments that are kind of at the end of the rope. There's banks that have been kind of looking very sickly. And as part of all that, they're talking about instituting, you know, sort of a cashless society, digital thing and canceling the paper currency which makes sense that they do it all at once because if you're going to default on the debt and you're going to you know shut the banks then be a natural time to do that and so then the next step might be europe that you know the the first quarter first half of 2021 might be the europe drama and the us will naturally obviously be affected by that but if you look at what's coming down the pike for 2021 there seems to be kind of a consensus growing, and it doesn't really matter whether Biden or Trump is going to be president. It seems to be an agreement that they're going to run a deficit of about three and a half trillion dollars, and the Fed is going to cover it with a printing press. You're just, you're just hearing that from both sides, and you're hearing that number, like 3.6, 3.4, something like that. And that, I think, will be a bridge too far. <laughs> if all that fully plays out, things are going to be off to the races. And, and what happens in countries is, if you look at, for example, how did Germany get into hyperinflation. And they had been printing money to fund the debt, fund the government since 1914. Much of World War I was financed with a printing press. Nothing particularly bad happened. And what happened in Germany was basically uh, Versailles. And when the Treaty of Versailles came through and it was all this horrible stuff, they looked at that and they said, we no longer have confidence that we're going to have stability. And the currency dropped 90%. They were printing money. They had been printing money for five years, but that was the point in which they said, mm. you know what? These they don't have a future. It's when it's 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 that it's that change that can really propel things. And I think there's a risk of that happening in the next twelve months, where people it's already starting to happen, right? You're already starting to see people say, you know, do I have to buy gold now? Do I have? To, am, am I going to 
buy Bitcoin now. All these things, right? Where they say, you know, they bail out. It's like, I'm bailing out. You know, I'm going to... I'm going to sell all my bonds for whatever I can get for them and get the heck out of here, you know, get the heck out. <laughs> and, and that's when you can see these huge moves. And, and the government just stand by and say, it's not us. We're not doing anything. Everything's just blowing up. Everything's just, you know, caught on fire. It's speculators. This is what hap- has, has happened in other countries. Um, so that you c- it could happen again. So there's a tipping point. The average person on the street finally realizes that, that something's not right. Yeah. They basically just kind of change their behavior. What happened in the 1970s, for example, was if you look at the statistics of money supply, they were growing the monetary money supply by about 6% a year, the entire decade, which was almost the same as the 60s and the 50s. If you look at the statistics of money supply, they're almost the same. They're actually they're like, they're like a little bit higher. They're 1% higher than the 50s and 60s. You, mm. you can't see it. You can't see the 70s there. Well, what happened was in an inflationary environment, the demand for money goes down because it's losing value, right? So you just find ways of making do with less money. And so the value of the currency dropped by 90% over that decade. So we could see something like that, where I call it revulsion, where they say, you know what, you know, we have to change, we're going to have to start changing our behavior. Let's imagine our guy with a coffee can, right? I talked about some guy with 10,000 bucks in a coffee can. He thinks he's being safe, right? Oh, I've got, you know, I'm being safe. I'm being, I'm, I'm, protecting myself from government default and bank failure and with my $10,000 in coffee can. Mm. Then then he decides one day, you know, what if this $10,000 is not the way to go? Well, he goes out and he buys, he takes $5,000, he buys some gold coins. Well, now he's got $5,000 less. That $5,000 got pushed into the economy. And if everyone does that, then there'll be twice as much money as people want. That kind of decision-making. In that actual scenario, what would happen is the value of the dollar would crash. The value of gold would go way up. Everyone's everyone's trading their their cash for gold. What happens to the price of gold? Right, it's going to go up. Do you want to do you want to take a stab at a future gold price ballpark? Um, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of kicking around some numbers that we will break three thousand next year and break five thousand in 2022, which is roughly what happened in 73, 74. It's something that's happened already in U.S. history. Is that kind of scale of move? And given the crazy things we're doing now compared to the actually quite modest things we were doing then, it seems entirely possible. I think there's potential we could hit 10,000 before the end of 2021. I'm not, I, I think it's maybe a 10% chance of that, but it's definitely possible. Like I said, right, uh, in, in 1919, the German, they had a 10 to 1 move in, in the German mark, which would be like $20,000 gold in a year. On the other hand, maybe we're at, you know, Maybe we finish the year with gold at uh, 2000, in which case I'll book a 10% gain and say, well, you know, maybe next year. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on uh, the Davos set and the Great Reset stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I followed all that Agenda 21 stuff for years, and it was all pretty interesting. I think everyone has to say, well, is now that our playbook, right? Uh, because it's all kind of, you know, when it's all kind of coming down the line here. I'm not sure what you can do about it, but yeah. don't take the vaccine is my advice. Because I've only come across that relatively recently. It just seems so few people have really come across much of that yet. Well, you guys in Australia are getting that Agenda 2030 stuff pretty strong these days. Canada too. Yeah. Well, I think we've just been surprised. Australians are pretty laid back, easygoing. And I think there's a strong case that we've rolled over way too quickly on on some of what's happened here. It's like I, I live in the national capital, but one of our big states here, Victoria. I mean, there were 5 million people effectively under house arrest for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it it just, it was extraordinary. I mean, we've had, you know, we had massive bushfires. As soon as the bushfires finished, we had COVID. So it's interesting. So that Great Reset stuff is essentially 
just more centralism. I mean, it's a, it's the darker side of centralism, right? I think it is straight out of the Bible. <laughs> I think it's the real thing. As, as, as many yeah. other people have said over the years, get your Bible playbook out, which is don't get vaccinated. My take is if you have to drop out of everything, do it. For me, right, I do all this stuff. But if I had to make a living as a, I don't know, vegetable farmer, rather than participate in this system, I would do that. So I wanted to ask you, what's next? Like you've done these three major books. What are you working on? Well, not any more books. <laughs> I'd like to write books, but it's a public service, <laughs> put it that way. But writing a book, it's like swimming the English Channel, right? You could think about it for a while, but when you start writing, you cannot stop until you're done. At least that's the way I am. Maybe maybe some people can put it on hold and, and like work a job and have it do the same time. But for me, you just have to keep going. And you know, it could be three years. You don't even really know when you start, how long it's going to take of three years of full-time work. And there's nothing in this in this planet that's worse yeah. than a book that's half done. <laughs> uh, so it's like it's like swimming the English Channel, and it's and, yeah. you're, and you count it in years. My books tend to be pretty complicated. I don't know if you noticed, but there's there's a lot of historical stuff in there. A lot of statistics. It's not just let me just write my it's like you know blogging. You know let me let me write my opinion. So yeah, nothing uh, nothing particularly there. I've I've you know kind of back in the Wall Street side of things. Um, doing some investment related yeah. things for institutions there's also a lot of stuff on my website newworldeconomics.com is my website all right well we're going to have you back because i just feel that you know talking to you we could just riff for hours so i'm going to link i'm going to link out to uh to your website i liked your recent post about the what what does bitcoin have in common with a i'll, I'll put a link to that one people should read that i liked it and uh, listen, Nathan, I want to thank you for the incredible amount of sweat, equity, blood, sweat and tears you put into those books. From reading that first line about the high priesthood of economics, I was hooked and I've really enjoyed what you're doing. So thanks for the effort you put into them. We're going to send people to your blog to keep in touch. But uh, for me personally, thanks so much for making time today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, hey, everybody, Jonathan Dorr with you back again. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. There was such a depth of learning there, such a depth of knowledge. I hope that uh, these ideas have you thinking. I hope that they're going to bring some value to your strategy as you look at the months ahead and the interesting times that we're all going to be facing. So I really hope you enjoyed that interview. I really hope you'll be back for the next one. We've got a whole bunch of great guests lined up in the time ahead. So please make sure you've subscribed to the podcast here. Wherever you're listening, you'll find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you just do a search for the supply side. And of course, please make sure you come and check out the website at supplysidepartners.com to find out a little bit more about what we're doing. So uh, listen, make sure you go and track down Nathan's books. Just jump on Amazon or go to his website at newworldeconomics.com and uh, get yourself a copy of The Magic Formula. Check out his earlier work on Gold Standards. Really, really fantastic books. They've got that depth of research. You know, he makes that great point in the end of the interview that you just heard that these are not blog posts. These are not people just, you know, banging out whatever idea crept into their head. This is years of work synthesizing just how important gold standards are so friends i'm interested i'm interested in what's going to happen uh, when our monetary system kind of finds its new footing and i hope like a lot of us that gold's going to play a big part in that so reach out come and say hi on the website at supplysidepartners.com let us know some key people you'd like us to interview we're looking for great guests to take this conversation further but once again i really hope you enjoyed our interview with nathan lewis go and check out his website newworldeconomics.com 
please make sure you've subscribed. My name is Jonathan Doyle, and I'm going to have another interview for you very soon. <laughs>